This podcast is an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Episode 4, 2000, India. My exit plan hadn't worked, and after what happened in Mexico City, I was back with John. I appreciated him more than ever, and knew that taking him for granted had been wrong. He didn't want me to lose my thirst for adventure, so he said, Do you want to go backpacking in India with me for a month? It would be a last-minute trip with no reservations or plans, just an adventure with a wad of cash and a round-trip ticket. I said, let's do it. We left the following week. We took Air France, so we decided to stop over for a night in Paris. We stayed in a hostel and took a metro to see the Eiffel Tower. We bought our tickets at the metro counter and telling the women where we wanted to go. No one seemed to speak much English. We needed our metro ticket to exit, and one of ours didn't come out, so we were trapped in the metro. We saw two police officers and asked, We purchased tickets to get off at this stop to see the Eiffel Tower, but one of our tickets didn't come out of the machine, so we were stuck in the metro. The police officer said, You have to pay us a fine to exit of $80. Why, we said. One of our tickets was fine and the other one didn't work. Why would they sell us two different tickets? He said, You did not uh, purchase the right ticket. You need to pay me the fine in cash right now or we will take you to jail. John paid them, not wanting to deal with the hassle of going to the police station. We were shocked by the corruption. Everyone else we encountered in Paris was rude or overly aggressive, especially the men, to me. I wondered how Paris could be considered a great city, when my brief encounter with it made it feel like one of the worst cities I had been to. We got back to the airport in the morning with plenty of time before our flight. We asked where the check-in was and waited in the line they had directed us to. After about 30 minutes, we got to the front, and we were told we waited in the wrong line, and they told us we had to go to another part of the airport. When we got there, they said, We already sold one of your seats, and the flight is about to take off. What? I want to speak to someone in charge. A manager came over and said, Someone on the plane says they are feeling sick, so we can get you on the flight. But the plane is on the runway. We have to rush. Let's go. As the baggage crew was looking for the man's luggage in the bottom of the plane, we sprinted through the airport, ran through security, ran down a flight of stairs, and out a random door into the tarmac. The French ticket counter guy told us to hop onto the back of a golf cart with some luggage, and we zoomed off to the plane sitting near the runway. We walked up the stairs to the plane, and everyone glared at us like we were the cause of the delay. It seemed to be a mix of French and Indian people, all united in their disdain for us. We couldn't sit together, so it was a very uncomfortable long flight. I did talk for most of the flight with this girl sitting next to me from Amsterdam, who was also about 20. She said, I'm visiting a friend who is in prison. She brought weed from Amsterdam to Bombay and got caught. She got 10 years uh, in this harsh Indian prison. But her family is trying to get the sentence reduced. So whatever you do, follow the rules and don't go to prison. It's about as horrible as one could imagine. The story was unsettling. I pondered the adventure ahead. I grew up in the hippie New Age tradition. 
Before I went to Chile, I had read many books about Eastern philosophies and mysticism, like Ram Das. The Celestine Prophecy books were my Bibles, and I followed their teachings, especially the first insight, There Are No Coincidences. It forced one to pay attention to the signs around them. I had always thought of India as a spiritually unique place. Although I was shaken by what happened in Mexico City, I did have a new awareness and appreciation for life. I wanted to follow a more spiritually aware path. I wondered if I would cross paths with any gurus, or would there be more tragedies to come. We arrived at the Bombay airport after midnight, and all the exchange places were closed. We didn't really go through any sort of terminal, just right to a baggage claim area which had nothing but carousels. After finding our bags, we exited into the street, which was packed with hundreds of small Indian men trying to yell at us and grab our luggage to put it into their taxis. It was a chaotic scene of confusion. John found a cab, negotiated the price, and we were off to our hostel about 30 minutes away in the middle of Bombay. It was unbearably hot and humid. The city was quiet as everyone slept. I was shocked to see sidewalks lined with people sleeping, packed like sardines next to each other. I'd never seen regular people sleep like that. The driver said, They aren't homeless, it's just a hot night. We arrived at our hostel exhausted. The bathroom had a filthy Indian-style toilet on the ground and a spout with a bucket. There wasn't a sink or shower, and there were insects everywhere. Bed bugs began attacking me as I laid on the bed. I was starving, sleep-deprived, and the insects were on an Indiana Jones level. John and I were both to the point of tears. This is what I imagined hell would be like. John pulled a few items out of his bag and laid on top of them on the bed. I sat there, sitting with my legs crossed, meditating. I inhaled deeply, calming down. I counted my exhales and said my mantra, everything will be okay, over and over again. I became aware of my thoughts and separated myself from them, watching them come in and out of my mind like floating clouds passing by. I had been meditating for a few years, but I felt a very strong spiritual connection around me that felt different. My surroundings couldn't be any worse, so it must have been something deeply metaphysical. I imagined plush green hills of terrace farming. The warm, 80-degree humid air felt nice on my skin. I can hear the birds and breeze gently brush the tropical trees. I hiked down to a wooden picnic table on the valley floor, which was covered with colorful wild flowers, lumpy grass, and shamrocks. I sat on the bench at the picnic table when three people flew up with a picnic basket. One of them was my dad, a man my age, and a boy about seven years old. I embraced them like loved ones, and we sat eating a delicious meal of bread, cheese, fruit, and salad. I felt intense love and positive energy coming from them, like I had known them my entire life, better than I had known anyone. The ground started to shake from a rolling earthquake. We all started flapping our arms and levitating in the air when my body jolted awake as my head slumped over bumping John's knee. I sat back up, meditating in a half-sleep state. I remembered the green valley and realized I had dreamed about it many times before. It was a reoccurring dream about somewhere I had never been to or seen before, which I thought was odd. I knew my dad in the dream, but I didn't recognize the other two people.
I felt like I knew them intimately. Part of the book, The Tenth Insight, is the realization that we have a circle of soulmates that transcends the physical world. We have a loving connection with them, and they help guide us through our journey so we can fulfill our spiritual purpose. It felt like those people could have been part of my soulmate circle. I didn't know what the dream meant, but I did feel that the subconscious mind was all-knowing and that I should at least pay attention. I pictured my soulmate circle looking down on me and somehow keeping me safe, like when the old man appeared from nowhere in Chile and saved me from that college guy and the close call I had in Mexico City. I sat in a relaxed, calm state when I heard a loud squawk at the window. I turned around and a large, brightly colored parrot stood on the branch outside the window telling us to wake up. I peered out the window. The buildings looked run down, but in between them was a corridor of beautiful, tall trees with tons of tropical birds calling to each other. We checked out and started looking for a nice hotel to check into. We found one on the beach and spent the day going to Elephant Island and doing typical touristy things. Next, we wanted to go to Aurangabad, which is about six-hour journey, to see the ancient Buddhist and Hindu caves. We went to the train station and tried to buy tickets, but we found out that all the first and second class trains were fully booked all week long. We didn't want to get stuck in Bombay for the week, so we were perplexed on what to do. The local train would take 12 hours and no one recommended it. Also, the ticket counter was swarming with like 50 guys pushing each other and cutting in front of each other trying to get tickets. I peered at the shady guys eyeing our backpacks and told John, watch the bags while I try to go buy the tickets. I waited in line and then had to resort to pushing along with everyone else. The sweaty, smelly skin of the guys brushed against mine. I finally got the tickets, and we were off to any car that we could squish into. The packed train cars had people hanging out the doorways. We found a nearly empty car and felt lucky. Then, in the corner, I saw an elderly dead woman laying on the floor. Her disheveled body laid face down, motionless, in an awkward position. We freaked out, hopped into the next car, finding our way through the crowd. We stood there, packed in the train car with tons of people. The toilet had overflowed and sewage was leaking throughout the entire floor of the car. Everyone was staring at us. The smell was unbearable and we stood there looking at each other for about 30 minutes. The train was going about 20 miles per hour and we had the realization that there was no way we were going to do this for 12 hours. We got off on the next stop. We had no idea where we were and we couldn't find a taxi at the train station. We found an auto rickshaw and asked him to take us back to the hotel we had stayed at the previous night. He said, It may take about 45 minutes. And we said, No problem. What we didn't know was that we were in the middle of a vast slum. It was my first time seeing a third world slum up close. It wasn't like the shanty towns of Mexico City. The shacks were small, and some only had cloth for walls. There were rivers of sewage and part of the slum was on stilts with dirty water below the entire village. Despite being the worst living conditions I'd ever seen, everyone seemed happy, busy with their normal lives. Kids, some naked, were running around playing with toys made from rubbish and sticks, 
Moms were washing clothes, and people were selling items and cooking. I had mixed feelings because the squalor and level of waste seemed inhumane, but people seemed content. My wide eyes observed everything, and when we got closer to the city, I saw a man carrying what looked like a dead body, partially covered with a sheet, in a homemade wheelbarrow. As we sat in a traffic jam, in a small roundabout, I watched as several men stood in line for some chai. The tea maker poured the boiling hot tea mixture from one tin cup to another as he artfully mixed the tea, cooling it down until the milk and black tea were perfectly mixed. As he stretched his arm upwards, the tea fell a foot perfectly into the cup below, seemingly more magical than anything a barista at Starbucks can do. Up until that point in my life, I had never seen a dead person, and that was two in one day. We made it back to our hotel and contemplated our next move. Seeing the slum that day firsthand had changed my perspective on life. I felt humbled and grateful for everything that I had. At no point did I feel threatened or unsafe, and I wondered if that's how people treated foreigners, or if it was their concept of karma. I wondered if people were kind to others because they thought it would bring them good fortune in the future. I wanted to incorporate the principle of karma into my belief system. If I lived a humble life, following Jesus' teachings, helping others, and always try to do the right thing, then maybe a guardian angel would watch over me. Having a sense of purpose in life was important for earning the right to stick around, I thought in my mind. The next day, we decided to take the night bus to Aurangabad. About an hour outside of Bombay, the bus stopped and let on a Muslim man dressed in a beautiful peach throbe with a white head cover. He was very handsome in his twenties, and a wave of fresh rose petals filled the air when he walked past me down the center aisle. An image of Jesus flashed through my mind, as if that is what he must have looked like, I thought. It's interesting that that image just spontaneously popped into my mind. The bus stopped to allow him to pray and wash his face, hands, and feet twice on the journey, which I thought was very thoughtful for a bus filled with Hindus. The bus was dark and most people were sleeping, including John. I sat in my seat feeling uncomfortable, unable to sleep. I put my seat back straight up and sat meditating. I observed my thoughts and relaxed my body as I drifted off into a half-dream state. The Jesus-like man was still on my mind, so I pictured him levitating with a yellow aura around him, his smell of fresh rose petals, and calm energy of love and kindness. I was watching the man from about ten feet away, slightly hovering. Like many of my dreams, I had the feeling that I had no gender and that I actually might be a boy. We were suddenly back in the green mountainous valley. I watched the man from a distance. He met four other men and sat in a circle talking and meditating. A white light glowed around each person. I thought they didn't know I was there, but the Jesus-like man turned around and smiled at me. I felt a blast of energy and sense of excitement that jolted me awake. I sat thinking about my dream. It must have been inspired by a book I recently read called Mystic Christianity. It theorized that the time period when Jesus was young and not mentioned in the Bible, the yogi who wrote it said Jesus was in India and learned to perform miracles and Eastern mysticism from gurus during that time period. 
We arrived at our little motel and woke up early to explore the caves. The Hindu caves had amazing details and were carved entirely out of a single giant rock. The Buddhist caves had a special energy to them. It was actually a Buddhist university that was located in a horseshoe-shaped canyon, which was good luck for Buddhists. It was carved in the 6th to 8th centuries. They used mirrors to light up the caves, therefore they were carved with specific angles in mind. A group of Indian third grade school children on our tour asked us many questions, took pictures with us, and held our hands. They were sweet and adorable. All the locals we had met were extremely friendly and had a great sense of humor as they made fun of the other tourists. Feeling good about the wonderful people we were meeting and the high energy vibrating off those caves, I pondered how happy I felt to be alive in the moment. After the tour, we sat in one of the caves talking when an American man in his 60s and a Southeast Asian woman, who looked younger than me, started talking to us. John and the guy started talking about business, and the woman turned to me and said, Do you want to look at the cave paintings together? I said, Okay, and we walked deeper into the cave. In her broken English, she said, Can I come with you? I'm being paid for this trip with this man, but he's a lot older than I thought he would be. I said, I don't really know how I can help. The guys joined us, and John said it was time for us to go. As we walked away, I discussed the situation with him, and he said, There is nothing we can do. Despite having an amazing day, it ended with mixed feelings as usual. India felt like the most spiritual place it had ever been to. But there was still suffering everywhere. That woman was only in my life for five minutes, but I wish I had done more to help her. I was twenty and wanted to help others, but I didn't know how. We took the night train back to Bombay and then to Goa, our next destination. Once out of the city, the train became less packed, and we sat on the uncomfortable benches. Everyone stared at us, and most people eventually tried talking to us. There wasn't anything else to do on the train all day but look outside at the beautiful green countryside of trees and rice paddies. People would ask us about America and if we could take them there. They would tell us about their home and relatives or people they knew in the city or abroad. Everyone treated us with kindness and shared everything that they could with us. John got suckered into trying some nasty spicy milk in a plastic bag, and I tried the thumbs-up soda. We made friends along the way and fell in love with the people. The women seemed so beautiful, and many of the men seemed unattractive, in my view, with their little mustaches. Mustaches never look good on their own like that. Although all women wore dresses or saris exposing their stomach, but covering their shoulders and legs. I found it interesting how it was okay to reveal some areas and not others. Goa was a tropical paradise that I could only imagine in my dreams. I had never seen such a dense coconut palm forest right up to the beach like that before. The Indian Ocean was a pale blue and old wooden handmade boats lying the shore. We stayed in a motel in a touristy area with nice restaurants and EDM clubs. There were lots of Westerners that lived there and visited regularly. I bought a bunch of cool stuff at the open-air market. Like all experiences so far in India, there was a mix of the sublime and desperation. One day, when we were walking on the beach, a group of girls 
six through eight, ran up to me, hugging me, trying to hold my hand and talk to me. I caught one of them trying to pull my wallet out of my pocket. They were a very adorable pickpockets. I wasn't upset, but I was glad to still have my wallet. The following day, we took an auto rickshaw most of the day to the southern part of the state to a remote seaside village. We stayed in huts close to the beach in a coconut grove with a shared bathroom for the entire camp. I relaxed on the beach while getting a $5 massage. Massage, meditation, spirituality, and karma was a way of life and a state of mind. I fantasized, if I'm rich someday, I'm going to buy a vacation home in Goa. Next, we ventured to my favorite part of India, Kerala. From the train, we took an auto rickshaw to a small boat to go through the backwaters to get to a small fishing village. Tropical green tree bridges covered the canals in many areas. We watched people in their modest small houses cleaning and cooking and preparing fires on very small islands. The boat floated down the canal through water lilies that looked like a perfect picture. On one of the many stops, a class of first-grade adorable schoolgirls jumped on the boat. They were fascinated with us. Where are you from? they asked. We are from California, I said. They giggled with excitement. Do you like it here in Kerala? How long are you going to be staying for? Maybe you can come to my house and meet my parents, the girl said. We are only staying for a short time, I said, unfortunately. They jumped off in the next stop, waving goodbye. We arrived in the fishing village and went to the fanciest hotel in town. The pool and garden had a magical ambiance. We ate dinner in a large tent outside next to the pool, made of bright, colorful, beautiful silk fabrics that flowed in the breeze. A man played the sitar on the side of the pool, and the music echoed off the hotel. At dinner, John and I sat next to the fire pit and dimly lit pole. Not only did the place look divine, but I also noticed a high vibration of energy there that felt special. In addition to being aware of energy around us, one can also gain energy from observing the simple beauty in things and appreciation of life in the moment as described in the Celestine Prophecy. Feeling blissful, I asked John, What do you think of India so far? It's the most different place I've ever been. It's unique and the people are very friendly. I agree. Imagine all the challenges they have to overcome, especially compared to the life of privilege that we have. Well, I wouldn't say privileged. Everything I have, I've worked very hard for and earned. It wasn't given to me. I was stunned by his comment and didn't know how to respond without totally insulting him. I disagree. Clearly you have had opportunities that I can't even comprehend, I said. He shook his head at me. John's father came from a family of farmers that were put out of business as a result of the Cesar Chavez movement. Smaller farmers couldn't sustain the higher wages, therefore agribusiness was born. He left the family business and became an accountant, and so did his wife, who was extremely intelligent and ended up making more money than him. They grew their business and became business consultants and entrepreneurs that invested in many franchises and started several small businesses. They had a large family of four children who were each successful serial entrepreneurs with their own families. The entire family was extremely hard-working, but it was obvious that having money 
helped in the generation of more money. For example, John was giving a loan of a hundred thousand out of college to start his first business, an internet cafe. It was located around the corner from my parents' house, which is where I met him. Like most businessmen, he had no problem bending the rules, and I even saw him lie to a police officer once while we got pulled over like it was no big deal. He had a level of confidence that came naturally based on how he was socialized. John would never do anything to hurt others and was a good person, but the fact that he wasn't aware of his white male privilege baffled me. We had a distinctly different world view at the time, and I tried to accept him for who he was and realized we wouldn't see eye to eye on everything. Although I loved him, I didn't feel that he was my one true love. I knew deep down that we weren't meant to be, and we should break up. My soul was longing for a deeper connection with someone. Although I didn't know it at the time, Scott had been teaching me valuable entrepreneurial skills that would later help me succeed in life. Our training had started from day one as he taught me how to run his business, and I helped him start several other businesses during the time that we were together. Next, we took a bus inland and then a long taxi ride through a forest to an organic farm where we learned everything we could about organic farming for a few days. The family we stayed with was kind. As we learned how to harvest black pepper, I thought of the ancient Indian spice trade, which was one of the reasons India was colonized in the first place. Most of the valley was filled with pineapple farms, but this farm had a mixture of all sorts of fruits and vegetables, including tar trees. I had no idea that tar actually came from trees. It was an educational, eye-opening experience. Then we went to the southern part of Kerala to the coast and stayed at a pristine beach town there. Kerala was distinctly different than the rest of India, filled with lots of beautiful temples and middle-class neighborhoods. A more significant portion of the population was educated, and there was regular debates about human rights. The trains weren't running on the day we left due to a city-wide strike. People were protesting restrictions from the federal government, which had almost broke out into a violent riot. Kerala in the past had been communist and then socialist, and now capitalist measures were being imposed by the federal government. We escaped to the airport in an auto rickshaw and flew to Bangalore to stay with family friends. My best friend in college was a girl named Kamala, and her family lived in Bangalore, which was our next stop. It was one of the more modern cities in India, buzzing with tech companies, entrepreneurs, and startups. It was a medium-sized city, not too big and not too small. Walking around the city, I saw several Indian guys standing on the sidewalk, pissing into the street. I saw at least two penises on the first day, and there were more throughout our stay. We walked around the beautiful green parks. Kamala's sister showed us around and took us to a street view market with lots of fried mystery items. She gave us a tutorial on Indian cuisine, which I wish we had heard at the beginning of the trip. She didn't talk about her sister much. Kamala's family was very kind and hospitable, which is how everyone treated us that we got to know. I didn't know what to expect given Kamala's circumstances. I met Kamala while living in the dorms during my first trimester of college in San Diego. The dorms consisted of two-story wooden cabins in a dense eucalyptus forest in Scripps Ranch. 
Each duplex of four apartments had two bedrooms. Kamala was hanging out on her porch, painting her toenails, while I was hanging on my balcony above. I said, That's a nice color, she said. Thanks, I was about to add some henna on my feet. Do you want me to paint some on you? Sure, I said. As she leaned over painting my foot, she explained, I'm only here for a year for the hotel management certification. What about you? I'm working on finishing my bachelor's in international relations, I said. Forgive my short hair. I hate it. I don't feel like a woman without it. I got in a serious accident in India last year and came to the U.S. for brain surgery and they had to shave my head. Well, thank goodness you're okay. It will grow back before you know it, I said. Yeah, I still had to go for lots of doctor appointments to monitor my progress, so I figured I might as well do something productive in the meantime. Kamal and I became close friends. She was a Brahmin, and her parents agreed to an arranged marriage with a Brahmin prince when she was very young. He had grown up with her, and they were close friends. He was going to school in Boston. About a month after we met, she started dating an Indian guy that lived off campus. He was a successful software engineer, handsome, and treated her like a queen. I asked her, How are things going with Biju? I hardly see you anymore on weekends now that you guys are together. I'm falling in love with him, which is terrible. I could never marry him given his caste and he is Muslim. Don't you think you should be able to decide your own destiny, I protested? She said, I committed to my arranged marriage a long time ago, and I would never want to let my parents down like that. I said, I wish you would give him a chance. He loves you and would treat you like a queen. You can have a happy life with him. With tears rolling down her cheeks, she said, It's not an option for me. I don't understand why it's not an option. Don't you believe in true love? Shouldn't you live your life for yourself rather than for your parents? She said, It's hard for me to explain since American and Indian culture are so different. The happiness of my family is as important as my happiness and I want to follow their wishes. I will learn to love him and have faith that they have chosen a good partner for me. She ended the relationship with her boyfriend after a year, just before graduating. Her fiancé attended the graduation, and he was a handsome, arrogant, playboy-looking type. He checked me out in a sexual manner, looking me up and down, before I actually realized it was her fiancé. I was worried for Kamala, and felt disappointed. I had no confidence that he would treat her half as good as her ex-boyfriend. After college, I lost touch with Kamala. She and her family stopped returning my messages. I think her family in the U.S., who I had met a few times, thought that I was a bad influence. I didn't know if it was because she had relocated, or if she had had a complication with her brain surgery and maybe died. She was a truly amazing person, and it hurts to wonder if she avoided me simply because she thought I was too judgmental of her situation. I was following my heart, trying to make the argument for love, but I would have respected her decision regardless. She was an extraordinary woman, and taught me a lot about Indian culture. She showed me movies about human trafficking in India, and we discussed women's issues in the country often. She once showed me a film about girls aged 10 to 14 being kidnapped in Nepal in northern India and taken to New Delhi and Bombay where they had no identification and were chained to beds and repeatedly raped until they submitted to their new job as a sex worker. Sometimes they would be rescued and sent back home. 
the last scene was a girl returning to Nepal years later and her family rejecting her. Before that, she was interrogated by a sexist police officer who asked if she liked what the men had done to her and if she wanted to do it to him. I told Kamala, This is horrifying, she said. I know, and it seems impossible to stop given how lucrative sex slavery is. As women, we should do everything we can to fight for these powerless girls, I said, and she agreed. Kamala often had unique perspectives. For example, she criticized Gandhi for allowing Pakistan to break off from India and the civil war that ensued afterwards. She said, We were all Indian and we should have worked to spread tolerance and unity. She always made me laugh with her distinctive Indian sense of humor. I've had very few close friends, but those that I've had, like Kamala, I loved dearly. I felt passionate about her like a partner. I wondered if I should think of India as a place of many complex layers or of contrasts. The countryside and beaches were beautiful, but the cities appeared ugly and harsh to me. Most people were warm and generous, while others were thieves and ruthless. It felt like a mystical spiritual place, yet there was enormous poverty and suffering. One thing for sure was that I loved India and I didn't want to stop traveling abroad. Being humble and seeing how people treated me when I had kind, positive energy made me feel safe. My intuition told me that my journey was just getting started. India had healed me and helped me overcome my fears. I was more in tune with my spiritual core than ever before, and I understood I had a purpose. Every place I had been to up until this point had prepared me for my most important venture yet. Kenya This podcast is a production of Cultural Junkie Press and an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Thank you to Arsenio Ndev for the music and Caitlin Torsarisi, David Brashnahan, and Minnie Mackey and Kevin for lending their voices to this podcast.